Recently, U.S. Transcom Commander Air Force General Darren McDew visited NGA's Springfield, Virginia headquarters as a part of the NGA's Director's Distinguished Speaker Series. General McDew spoke to the NGA workforce about the importance of keeping honor above personal gain, thinking at mock speed, and thanking people for the work they do every day. Stay tuned for Geo Interesting. Thank you very much for uh, allowing me to be here. And I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to say. What I real, I'm not, I'm not kidding, actually. Hey, Art, how are you doing? Um, here's what I want to do. I'd like to have a dialogue with you about one of my favorite subjects, uh, leadership. And I really want to get to some of your questions. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw some things up on the wall here that hopefully will spur discussion. Because I've spent now 34 years of my life, um, 34 years of my life, doing what I thought at first was going to be engineering, what I then thought was going to be becoming a pilot. Uh, what it has been all along the way is leading people. And it took me a while to actually recognize that's what I did. Uh, but now I know for a fact that's about all I do, because I don't actually produce anything anymore. Uh, so the first thing you'll see is this slide on the wall. How many of you have ever been in a room and been subjected to me speaking before? Only a handful? Well, that's interesting. Uh, so that's good. Um, and then the reason, so you'll need to know that that picture up there is actually me. It's not as easy today to see that it's me uh, as it was 20 years ago when it was taken. And people go, well, you know, you have lots of photographers following you all over the place. Why do you still use that picture? Well, there's a three very, very important reasons. One, simply, is because uh, I was a lieutenant colonel flying airplanes. Uh, I flew an airplane this morning, as a matter of fact, and let me tell you, I was better at it then. <laughs> as a matter of fact, in that picture, I was instructing someone else to fly an airplane. Uh, the guy in the left seat was getting one of his first air refueling sorties, and if you ever know anything about that picture, we're actually not where we're supposed to be. <laughs> You can't actually refuel from that left engine. <laughs> we should be lined up behind the belly of the airplane. So we're not quite where we're supposed to be, but I'm letting him find his way, and I'm talking to him. So it takes me back to the time when I flew airplanes for a living and I was particularly good at it. Second, you see, I was a lieutenant colonel. I was a squadron commander. Uh, it was my first meaningful command. It was the command where you get to know your people personally. And I tell you, I had 170 people in that squadron. I knew every one of them by first name. I could match every single spouse to the right military member. We had about 1.5 gazillion children in the squadron. I could get most of the right children to the right parents, and that was pretty good. But I took great credit and pride in the fact that I knew my people very well. And for an introvert, an engineer, that took work. It can be done, it just takes work. But the most important reason I use that picture today in every single briefing, beyond it reminding me of those monumental places in my career, is I look good in that picture. <laughs> so uh, let me, I've got a couple things I want to go through, and then we'll ultimately get to the, the meat of the thing, which is your questions. Let me begin with something that I promised I would do a long time ago. Next slide, please. Uh, this is something that we don't do enough of. 
I've never met the audience ever that has told me that they're sick and tired of being thanked. I have challenged every single person in all of my commands, which I think number eight or nine now, I've been counting them up recently. And I've challenged them with this. When I leave, I want the following IG complaint lodged against me. He thanked us far too much. He got us far too much recognition for the things we have done, and we're sick and tired of it. I've tried hard to get that, and I've never gotten it. I've never gotten a complaint that we're sick and tired of you saying thank you. It cannot be overdone if done sincerely. I just spent uh, about an hour plus in a room getting briefed and some time with that with your boss uh, in a dialogue about what you do. And I thought I understood it. I have a, a greater appreciation for it now. I say that I get a chance to run the best combatant command in all of the Department of Defense. And some people think that's arrogant. And no, it's not arrogance, it's true. It's just fact. The other combatant commands do a great job and they have a great mission and everybody knows who they are. But I get to represent a bunch of folks who live in the cornfields of Illinois. Those folks in the cornfields of Illinois will never find themselves in the history books. Those folks in the cornfields of Illinois will never find themselves on CNN. Their boss is the least known combatant commander in all of them. And we do a unit climate assessment annually, and it tells me they love what they do. They're proud of what they do. They get great satisfaction from what they do. Therefore, I call them the best in all the Department of Defense. I find it cute and quite adorable when the CENTCOM commander and the PACOM commander get up and say how many countries they have in their AOR, how much responsibility they hold for those vast numbers of countries. It's cute. <laughs> Our AOR is the globe, just like yours. You don't fraction yourself off into one region. You're across the globe. I tell my people sometimes we forget that what we do is not deliver stuff, we deliver options. When trouble spots occur around the world, the world still calls one place, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I don't care what the rhetoric says, that's the phone number on everybody's speed dial when they really find the crap hitting the fan. What our job is, and yours too, is to provide options for the nation that no one else has. And I'm quite proud that we deliver that, and I thank you for doing it. You underpin what this nation is capable of doing. You underpin the best that we have. And sometimes you become numb to it because everybody around you is doing it. It shouldn't stop you from appreciating what you do and enjoying the fact you get a chance to do it right now. So this is where I pause. I make eye contact with as many of you as I can. Dredge up as much sincerity as I can. I say simply thank you very much for what you do, why you do it, and the way you do it. And I greatly appreciate it, and I know more about it now than after the time I spent with you. Give me the next slide, please. So how many of you have ever seen me talk about the cube? A few of you? Okay, it's probably the most requested thing that I do because I believe that when you're a leader, the one thing in common you have with every other leader is people. 
I don't care what title you have, I don't care what you think you're doing as a leader, it all comes down to people. And if you don't understand the aspects of this cube, you're not fully understanding, appreciating, dealing with your people effectively, in my opinion. So this is the snapshot of the cube because I was told that most of you got it already, but it looks like that's not true. So let me do a quick summary, okay? I'll do a quick summary just so that you have this baseline. Uh, in the cube, you'll see that uh, there's two axes, performance and potential. And it runs low to high in, in each direction. And what you need to understand that every single human being you know fits somewhere on this cube. I have to pause here for a second. Someone in the audience is a technical person. Someone understands math and science. Someone right now is thinking, this is not a cube. <laughs> Someone is thinking to their mind, it's probably you, sir. You're probably telling me that this is a parallelogram or a square. You're probably saying to yourself that a cube has to have three dimensions and you can't call this a cube. How dare you call yourself an engineer? And I will go back to you and say, it's my briefing, mind your own business. <laughs> Therefore, it's a cube. <laughs> Deal with it. You can have it, call it what you want. I call it a cube. In the cube, you'll see that there are four quadrants, and uh, there are 10% on either end of this bell-shaped curve. The top 10%, the stars. Unfortunately, for most of us, most of our organizations believe that there are 90% of the organizations fill at least 10%. The, the math doesn't work. The bottom end of the spectrum, the deadwood, are the folks that people are in denial that, that actually exist in your organization. Most of you don't believe that you have these people, or you're in denial. There, there are only two people in an organization that don't know the Deadwood exists. Anybody know who they are? The Deadwood themselves, because they believe their performance appraisals. They believe those fit reps that we write. So they think they actually do walk on water and their feet don't get wet, because we don't give them honest feedback. Who's the other person that doesn't know these people exist? the supervisor. And everybody around the supervisor is chipping away at that supervisor's credibility because they're failing to act on that knowledge. And then I talk about the other two quadrants. The, the vast majority of your organization fit into two categories. One is your solid citizens. Those are the folks that get your work done every single day. They're the folks, if you have a widget producing company and your goal is to produce 100 widgets per day from 7.30 to 4.30, your solid citizens come to work at 7.30, they produce 100 widgets, and they leave at 4.20 because they're out the gate by 4.30. <laughs> but between 7.30 and 4.20, they produce every single day. You must set realistic goals for them because they won't innovate and get you 105, even when they're capable of it. But they won't underproduce either. And if you appreciate them, that's the thank you. They'll literally die for you. And in my business, it's important to have that relationship. Then there are the folks in the upper, I guess your left, um, learners. And people think that is a pejorative term. It could be a brand new person in the military coming out of basic training. It could be a new entry into your organization. It could be a brand new general officer, a brand new chief master sergeant a brand new 
anybody in a new position trying to do something different. They need someone to role model for them. They need someone to show them the way. Not bad, but the potential is there for them to be better because you spent time with them. Uh, I was a fledgling basketball player. I probably could have made it the NBA if I had a little bit more height and some talent. But, <laughs> but I, did, I did play on a bunch of all-star teams and I played, I played legitimately through, for most of my life until I decided I need to give it up and go pro in something else. Um, and what made me a better ball player was somebody willing to spend time shagging those balls as I missed and showing me how to shoot a better layup time and time again, because you can't get better unless someone is willing to spend time with you. I spent a lot of time on that foundational piece in this cube, cube, because it's that important to understand who your people are and what they need from you as leaders. So those taglines up there are what each of those folks need from you as a leader, okay? So we now have that foundation. That's typically an hour, okay? So, but you need that to be going, so what I'm gonna do now though, a little bit about me, please next slide. Um, sure, I'm a husband, a father, um, now a grandfather. Um, that's like the greatest thing in the world. I should have skipped the kids. I mean, I should have gone, should have gone right to grandchildren because uh, uh, Henry is the greatest little dude I've ever met in my life. My son was okay, but my, Henry's awesome. <laughs> because I give him back to my son. <laughs> Henry can now jump, he can climb on granddad, and uh, that's really, really good stuff. Uh, I can talk all day about Henry. Uh, so I've been doing this for about 34 years. Somebody added those up. I didn't know 19 assignments, uh, 11 different locations. I did start out in the KC-135. I've flown now about eight different airplanes. Only thing that means now is I'm old. Uh, I'm about to go speak to a group of folks that will be celebrating the 60th anniversary of the KC-135 and I have to prove to them that I wasn't at the first delivery. <laughs> um, but all through all of that, I've had a number of things that I think I've learned that I want to share and I continually share them because someone shared them with me. I either got them from personal testimony through people spending time with me or reading in books. And so you, you get the old guy himself right here, and we're gonna walk away through my career and a few lessons learned. Next slide. So I, I did attend the Virginia Military Institute. I did um, go there when probably African-Americans were not that prevalent, um, but my classmates didn't care. Uh, they cared about a few things. Were you a good teammate? Were you who you said you were going to be? Uh, and could they count on you? And that is what made me as a young person. When I found myself my senior year about to become the Corps Commander, which had never crossed my mind, by the way, had never crossed my mind, my classmates started, were the first ones that said it to me out loud. And this was a group of 420 young men, were all men at the time, and there were 20 African Americans when we started, there were three when we finished. And uh, they had decided that I ought to lead them. Now, they didn't get the final vote. The superintendent did. But it was whether I could be counted on when they needed me, whether I was going to perform to the level that I needed to perform, and was I going to be always the example that I should be. It framed me 
for everything afterwards. Next slide. Tell you, my company grade officer time, we will not go by, we're gonna go almost by rank, but I won't spend by every assignment. Some key things here, thinking at mock speed. Uh, as a young engineering student, I could have told you that 1.67 times 3.2 was some number. I can't do it today. Let me tell you what it means. So when you're in pilot training, you're flying a T-38 uh, supersonic aircraft, and you're flying down initial and about to fly the approach, and you're traveling at 300 knots, and you've got to calculate in your head I'm going to need this later. <laughs> and you're traveling at 300 knots, um, and you've got to calculate your landing speed at 300 knots. And the landing speed calculation is, and I still remember it, I think, it's 155 knots plus one knot for every 100 pounds of fuel you have over 1,000. Over so you've got to look at your gauge, see how much fuel you have, Take the difference between 1,000 and whatever you have, add a knot for that, add it to 155, and land. And you're going 300 miles an hour plus. So if you did 1.67 times 3.23, it might take you a minute. You don't have it. How significant are those digits? What I learned then are some things are insignificant. And it becomes 2 times 3 is 6, and you move on. There are things that you spend a lot of time on. They may not be as significant as you once thought they would be. Determining what those things are is important as you become a leader and become more and more senior. And then I found that there were things that I thought maybe had been, maybe were beneath me. But the bloom where you're planted says there are no unimportant jobs. And as the more senior I got in more leadership positions, I realized that every one of those jobs that someone gives you that you think, really me, is important. And if you're willing to do it and sign your name to it, you'll advance. I didn't understand that then, I do now. And so when I became the voting officer, and when I became the savings bond officer, and when I became the snack officer, and I've done all those jobs, if you name an additional duty, in the flying squadron, I've had it. I had the best snack bar you've ever seen. <laughs> I my voting bond drive, before the days of PowerPoint, I hand drew my cartoons and did posters myself. I sold savings bonds. Try selling savings bonds. <laughs> I sold a lot of savings bonds. Because it was important to get done. And then, about 150 years ago, I made a decision that I was going to do, yeah, about 150, 160 years ago. And that decision was, as long as I was going to wear this uniform, I was going to wear it appropriately. And the day I can no longer wear it appropriately, I need to take it off. And in my business, it means a couple things. If I'm hanging out with soldiers and Marines, guess what that means? I better be able to PT. I, better, I, better, I have to be able to get out there. If it's pull-ups and push-ups or running, I've got to be able to do it. And, and they don't care how old I am. I've got to be able to maintain that standard. I set a goal for myself of 100 on my PT test. I've had one that wasn't. I had an injured wrist. I had an exec that made me do um, get a nine on my, my push-ups instead of 10. 
and I got a 99 once. Haunts me to this day. <laughs> um, and then I realized that I am not really a fun producer. So this is me having a really good time. <laughs> uh, this is me sad. Uh, this is me angry. So you really do own the ability to make fun yourself, and you don't have to wait for someone to give it to you. I told my commands, I'm a fun enabler. Okay, next slide, please. I spent my field grade years, the early ones, uh, at the Pentagon, and actually at the White House. I don't have that graphic on there, and I learned a number of really important lessons. The most important on that slide, though, two. The top one? So if you're a young captain of the Pentagon or a young major at the White House, how do you get stuff done? You don't have any positional authority. It's about getting to know people as human beings and getting to trust you, getting them to understand that you're a good teammate and that you're going to say, you're going to be what you say. Wait a minute. I learned that back when I was a youngster. It scales forever, today. Still works. When I'm hanging out with four stars, guess what? I can't order another four star to do anything. How do I get them to do anything? Personal relationships. Do I, can they count on me in the clutch? Those things are important. The other is, is the bottom one. So I was uh, at the White House for two years as aide to the President of the United States. And I wasn't told no for two years. There's a couple different ways to take that. One is, you become arrogant. Okay, I did that. Um, no, what I really took from it was, someone has the power to say yes. You just gotta find it. And it also taught me, don't harass the person who is saying no. That may be the only power they own. You're wasting your time. Find the person that can say yes. Then harass them. Sometimes you're working at the wrong level. Uh, I told this to people in my squatter. When you have a problem with the BX, don't harass the cashier. That's why God invented managers. They can change something. The cashier can only do what the cashier can do. Okay, next slide. Um, this is about as fascinating a time as I've ever had in my entire life and probably eclipse every command I've had since. Okay, uh, every commander ever since. <laughs> and that is when I was a squadron commander and a lieutenant colonel. Because I told you before, it's where you make decisions that impact people's lives and you can see the impact every single day. That's important to me. And what I had an opportunity to do is kind of go through some of these lessons. I had a brand new squadron in Charleston flying a brand new airplane, the C-17. And believe it or not, morale was kind of low. How in the world you're Charleston flying C-17? How could morale be low at all? Well, it was because we were the second C-17 squadron in the Air Force, not, not the first. The first C-17 squadron in the Air Force used to call us names. And they just made fun of us because we were the second C-17 squadron. So we were lesser beings than them. And I just simply said to my squadron internally that we have one simple goal in life to be the best C-17 squad in the United States Air Force. Now that was one of two at the time, but that was the goal. And I said, we're gonna do it 
this year. By the end of this year, we're going to be recognized as the best C-17 squadron in all the Air Force. And it was a, a building block on how do you bring esprit and camaraderie to an organization. The 14th Airless Squadron, I'll give you a couple tips. Um, that mighty patch there, there were a couple C-17 squadrons. By the time I took command, there were three C-17 squadron. The 15th, the 16th, the 14, 15, 16, 17. And one of them had an eagle as a mascot. And I had secretly hoped I'd get that one. The eagle. I had all kinds of eagles in my repertoire. I had all kinds of quotes. I was ready to be the eagle's commander. I got the 14th. The pelican. <laughs> that majestic bird. <laughs> How do you rally people around the Pelican? Well, you can. First thing I started doing was I didn't introduce myself as the 14th Airless Squadron Commander anymore. I became the Pelican Squadron Commander. I was Pelican One and proudly stated it. No longer, when I went to the club for an official function, you know those little table numbers? I only said at table 14. I could have been at table six. My squadron would go find 14 and put it at my table. We had a, an awards system, you know, quarterly awards, that kind of thing, and people would win them. And my predecessor had this plaque in the shape of South Carolina that he would hand out. Well, my folks didn't have an office. What would they do with this plaque? There was a set of pens that went with a pen and pencil set in the squadron colors. At the top of the pen was the squadron patch. On the pen, it said quarterly award winner and had your name emblazoned on it, I decided that I would make a bigger deal out of that pen and pencil set. So I'd hand them the plaque, and we eventually did away with them once we got rid of the whole supply. And I would stand up in front of the entire squad, and I'd hold up the pen and pencil like this. And I said, the reason these two things are important is because all of a sudden, you now have to live up to the fact that you were a quarterly award winner or an annual award winner. Because as I put these in your pen pocket, you know, in your flight suit, flight suit, you got those two pen pockets right here. You now will be reminded every single day, and everyone who sees you will see you as an award winner. And so I would walk over to them. I would take whatever pen and pencil they had in there, because everybody got one, take them out and throw them away. And I would ceremoniously put each one in their pockets, smack it, and move on. Less than a quarter later, people outside the squadron who had left the squadron to go on other jobs said, you know, I was a quarterly winner, we're a winner my squadron. Could I get a set of pen and pencil? No. <laughs> you have to earn them. You cannot buy them. You must earn them. They were cheap. 15 bucks. Everybody wanted a set. And it didn't take long at all to get there. Um, as a matter of fact, when I left, which one of the things that almost brought me to tears, if I had a heart, I would have come to tears, was they gave me a set that said Pelican One when I left. Uh, that squadron has won squadron of the year, uh, won it the year that I declared that we would, and then has won it every, about every commander since. Very proud of the fact that we didn't just start the squadron, we developed a culture and perpetuated and developed leaders. More general officers have come out of that squadron during that time period. There have been six so far out of one squadron flying squadron. There have been more chiefs than I can count, more squadron commanders than I can count. And it started right there with a little bit of esprit de corps from Pelican One.
Um, and the other thing is if you see a problem, you can't ignore it if you're the leader. If you walk by a problem, you just validated that it's okay to include the deadwood in your organization because everybody else thinks you know about it. Next slide, please. There's too many things on this slide from what I've learned, but if you look at them, they all come into the category of things you kind of know. So every, every commander thinks they should build a vision. You ever notice that? Everybody needs a vision statement. Sometimes they get too fancy and too complicated. But the, the, the note I've got about, yeah, what do you want? When I became a first-time wing commander at Scott Air Force Base, actually, um, I was doing the whole offsite coming up with our strategic vision. And my colonels looked at me and said, well, sir, what do you want? Nobody had ever asked me that before. And I said simply, I want us to be the place you call if you want to know how to do something well. I want us to be the showcase, showcase for Air Mobility Command. So the tagline became, Air Mobility Command's Showcase Wing. Renowned for excellence, committed to superior service and exceptional support. And it became, Showcase Wing became that moniker in 2002. And if you go there today, it remains. Now, part of it is they're afraid to get rid of it now. <laughs> but it remained a long time before they were afraid to take it away because it resonated with the civilians that had been there for a long, long time. And they understood where it came from. Um, lots of other things you've heard about it. Uh, one of them is I make fun of myself. You have to look like you're having fun. You sometimes enjoy what you're doing, but you look like this while you're doing it. Who then wants to be you when they grow up? Nobody. And so I have to remind myself periodically to let it out, the fact that I enjoy the heck out of what I do, and show it. I struggle with that. Next slide, please. Uh, believe it or not, uh, General Officer still learns stuff. Uh, I've got to remind myself periodically, periodically that I have a boss because I can be quite autonomous. I'm, I live in the cornfields of Illinois. Nobody pays attention to what I do. I can just do stuff. But uh, I remind myself I do it on behalf of someone for some reason to stay connected to a larger enterprise and not just for the sake of what I want to do although that would be pretty darn fun. But that's a reminder that as you get more and more senior, don't forget that. And those other things are things that can trip you up. The social presence thing. Um, I have about eight Facebook pages um, every other week until the security guys take them down because now I'm a target as well. And so you've got to be careful of that. So I don't really have, I've got a Facebook page, but you can't find the real one. All the ones you find are not the real one because I'm really dormant in social media because of that. Um, and the bottom one I'll get there because I really want to get your questions is diversity. Diversity scares people. Just the pure talk of it scares some people because some people take it as I might lose something. An opportunity that was there for me before might be gone away because of diversity. 
I, I guess if I were in the majority, I might understand that feeling better. But I grew up with the majority. I mean, I was in a situation of 420 young men with 20 of them African-American. There were no women. So I understand some of that. But let me tell you what I believe about diversity. It's an imperative. It's an understanding that we make better decisions when people around us don't always tell us yes. It's not necessarily about race, gender, or ethnicity. However, in this country, the only way to measure is through race, gender, and ethnicity. People would like to say, I would like to get diversity of thought. Sure, measure it. I will tell you this, if you have different race, gender, and ethnicity on your table, your likelihood of having diversity of thought goes up, not down. Can you get that and still have groupthink? Absolutely. Less likely. I challenge my team, and I have for a long time, when I'm hiring for a new position, I want a representative group of people to select from. I don't select for diversity. I select the best candidate. What I have found, if you've got a diverse list, you have a greater chance of getting diversity on your team. If your list comes time and time again and has no diversity, challenge the list. There are qualified folks out there that don't look like you that deserve an opportunity to perform. If they don't, treat them like the deadwood that they may be and move on to the next candidate. Never hire the wrong person to get diversity. That just puts the cause backwards. Next slide. So here's a bunch of stuff um, that kind of a summary set of things that would cover just about everything I talked about that you can, I think, I'm looking around the audience, most of you can read. <laughs> a few of your lips are still moving, so I will pause the slide for a little bit. Um, I, I still challenge myself on these things regularly because I find them that important. Um, I forgot what the next slide is. Next slide. So at the Virginia Military Institute in Lexington, Virginia, Stonewall Jackson was a professor at VMI. Made it interesting when I got there, by the way. But when I had showed up at VMI, VMI had just graduated its first uh, black cadets in 1972. I showed up in 1978. Uh, it was an interesting, interesting place. The class of 1920, 22, was still around. Uh, and uh, one of the first classes I had a chance to speak in front of when I became announced that I would be the Corps Commander the following year, they weren't all that excited about the idea. So uh, they still played Dixie at VMI when I got there. Another, I could talk for hours about that as well. That's a whole other book. Um, but Stonewall Jackson still has some inspiring lessons. So I walked every day through this archway called the Stonewall Jackson Arch, and it said simply, you may be whatever you resolve to be. And I resolved that day that I was going to be a VMI graduate. No matter what they did to me, I was too stubborn to leave. And then as I've grown farther, I've decided that I was going to be somebody's good leadership example. At first, it was just my own. And then it was my crew, my flight, my squadron, and now it's US Transportation Command. I can only do what I can do. But the one thing I can control is the example that I am to others. And so I would challenge you to be the best you that you can be. 
in most cases, is pretty good. Next slide, I think that might be the last one. Next to last. Um, I, I start and end the same way, because you haven't challenged me yet without I've overdone it yet. All right, one last slide. So there are a lot of things that need fixing, uh, a lot of things that need to change, and most people are looking for someone else to do it. The great philosopher, the Lorax, I think has the answer. And the answer is you. Most of you get this. Geointeresting is produced by NGA's Office of Corporate Communications. Never miss an episode by subscribing to SoundCloud or iTunes. You can also like NGA on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening.